And whatever the good work has for you, it begins with a burden that leads to a passion, that leads to a mission. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke, and I get to serve as one of the ministers here at Plainfield Christian Church. If you're joining us online, welcome. We're glad that you're with us, and we hope to meet you here in person soon. Um, You know, back in the dark ages of 2020, um, while it seemed like everything we were seeing was bad, scary news, my wife, Rebecca, and I got some good, scary news when we found out that she was pregnant with our third little boy. And if I could just be completely honest with you about what I was feeling in that particular particular moment when we found out boy number three was on the way is like, I figured it was no big deal that I pretty much had it down at that point. Because we, we had two uh, little boys, ages two and under at that point already. I figured I kind of know what there is to know. What's another one really at this point? Because we kind of, we, we'd done the stuff, you know? We'd, we tested the limits of how long the human body can survive on nothing but coffee. Turns out it's a really, really long time. And, 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 and we, we had done all the things, you know, like we, we could catch the spit up and we could juggle the feeding schedules and, and the nap times and we weren't scared of the sleeplessness. This is not actually a joke. My, my wife and I, early on in our journey of parenting, we made a pact between the two of us that nothing we say or do in the middle of the night can be held against us during the daytime. Let me tell you, with a newborn in the house, that goes miles in preserving the health of your marriage. It's a really, really helpful thing. And, and, and we knew about little boys, right? I knew about the blood and the mud and, and the baby showers that you get if you don't like get the diaper on there fast enough. You guys have been there. You know this, right? That stuff wasn't the issue. It was the name. It, like, it's a lot of pressure to name a person, and, and like with, with kid number one, like we'd had his name picked out long before we ever even knew we were expecting. He was like the chosen one, you know? And then, and then kid number two comes along. It took us a few months, but we got there. We figured out a name. It wasn't any big deal. And, and then, but man, kid number three, I tell you, for the life of me, we couldn't figure out what to call this kid. And, and we're coming down for the wire and, and we couldn't figure out any kind of a name because when, when we were thinking of a name, like, like I wanted to give my child something to aspire to. I wanted his name to be attached to the story, to instill his life with, with strength and with meaning, with passion and significance. And so when Rebecca and I thought about this, eventually there was one name that rose to the surface. When we, when we thought about the strength that we wanted to give to our son, when we thought about how we wanted this little boy to grow up to be a fierce man of God, consumed with zeal for the Lord. When when we dreamed about what we wanted for our son, I thought of John Wesley. John Wesley is one of my spiritual heroes. I don't know if you're familiar with his story or not, but he's the founder of the Methodist movement. And a long time ago in England, John Wesley, he underwent this radical conversion to Jesus. And when he did, he looked around him and he was just brokenhearted by the stale religion that he saw everywhere. And so he felt this burden and it became his life's mission to wake up the church, to call half-hearted believers back to wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And so John Wesley went all around England preaching, but a lot of the churches didn't like that. And even when he got kicked out of the church building, he didn't stop. 
He started preaching even in the fields and people came and God used John Wesley and the preaching of some others too to, to wake up this whole generation of half-hearted believers in England. It was this great revival movement known as the Great Awakening that swept across the country. It even swept all the way across the Atlantic Ocean into this continent and it was the greatest revival movement that this continent has ever seen. Hundreds of thousands of people surrendering to Jesus. And so we named our son Wesley. Born from this dream to see him grow into a man possessed with passion for the Lord, a singular devotion to Jesus. My favorite quote from John Wesley is the one time John Wesley was asked about his preaching. Why was he so effective? How'd he do it? And he said, I light myself on fire and people come for miles to watch me burn. Man, when I think about what I want for my son, what I want for me, what I want for us as a church. I want us to be a church so passionately devoted to God's call on our life, so singularly sold out to his mission that he just lights us ablaze so that when our community sees the light and the heat radiating from our pursuit of Jesus, they would watch us burn and they would see the God that we serve. You know, we've been in this series through the book of Nehemiah where we're talking about Nehemiah's story, how God used this one man who burned with passion, specifically a passion to see the walls of Jerusalem get rebuilt. And last week we talked about how God's people who were in the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, they'd failed to obey God's laws, failed to worship him rightly, so they got sent into exile. And the book of Nehemiah is written kind of during that period in exile. Nehemiah is with the rest of God's people. He's in exile in the land of Persia. He hears about the city of Jerusalem has been broken down and sacked. The walls are in disarray and God gives Nehemiah this burden. He says, no, that's not right. And so it's that burden that leads to his mission. And he soaks this whole mission in prayer. And he did three things to kickstart his mission. Three things that we do too to kickstart our mission. Number one, he sits and weeps. Number two, he kneels and prays. And then number three, he stood and he did something about it. And so when we left off last week, Nehemiah had said, the gracious hand of my God was on me. And he's getting ready to trek a thousand miles across the desert to go back and begin rebuilding the walls. Now remember, as we prepare to open God's word together this morning, when we come to scripture, we don't wanna just like read it and then leave these stories in the room. We don't come to this moment and hear from God's word and nod and take a few, mo- take a few notes and then just get on with our lives. No, we wanna be people who wake up and every day we ask the two fundamental questions of following Jesus. Question number one, God, what are you saying to me? And question number two, what am I gonna do about it? Because I believe that as we walk through Nehemiah together, God wants you to do something about it. We talked last week about how Jesus didn't just save us from something, he also saved us for something. Paul says here in Ephesians chapter two, he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork. You are God's handiwork. You are his good work. Like way back in the beginning, Genesis one and two, when God makes the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, he looks at him and the Bible says, he saw everything that he made and God said, it was very good. You are God's good work and he has made you for good work. Paul says that you've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. And so the question we're asking together is, what is the mission 
that God made you for? What is the good work that he has prepared in advance for you to do? And our goal is that by the end of this series together, when we give you this little concrete block, you would know your mission and God's call on your life so clearly and so concisely that you'd be able to write on this little block and say, my good work is blank. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, that you'd be able to fill in the blank and live on mission for him. And last week we talked about how the foundation of that mission, the very base level of this wall that we're building is a prayer to pray, God, give me a burden. Break my heart for what breaks yours. God, show me the pain of the world that you specifically want me to step into. And whatever the good work has for you, it begins with a burden that leads to a passion, that leads to a mission. That's actually the first thing I wanna tell you about the good work. Number one is your good work needs passion. It needs passion. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the name Eric Little, but um, Eric Little was a record-setting Olympic runner for Scotland back in the early 20th century. He later uh, gave his life as a missionary. He was a follower of Jesus. If you've ever seen the fantastic movie Chariots of Fire, that's Eric Little's story. It's a great movie. But Eric Little's good work wasn't just him serving as a missionary later on in his life. Actually, part of God's calling on Eric Little's life was just to be a really good runner to race well for the glory of God. And, and he did. Um, one of my favorite lines from the movie is Eric Little says, he says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And I want that for you. I want you to find the good work God has given you so that when you're doing it, you know, oh yeah, this is what he made me to do. I'm, I'm feeling his pleasure. I want you to know I'm never gonna pretend to be the world's greatest preacher. You can go listen to 500 better preachers on a podcast this afternoon. But I do want you to know that that when I stand up here, I feel God's pleasure. It's like my soul exhales and says, ah, yeah, yeah, this is what I was made for. And I want you to find that good work where your passion and your burden and your mission all align for the glory of God, where you light yourself on fire and people come to watch you burn but your good work doesn't just need passion. It needs a couple other things also. So we're gonna look at Nehemiah chapters two and three to look at two other key ingredients of this mission that God has for you. Number one is yes, your good work needs passion. Second thing is this, your good work needs a plan. It needs a plan. When Nehemiah makes the journey across the desert, he arrives in Jerusalem. The time has come to start rebuilding these walls that have been in ruins for 150 years. But before he starts his good work, take a look at what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah chapter two, verses 11 through 16. He says this. He says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been burned by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. So before Nehemiah tells anybody about his goal, he does his homework, he studies, he comes up with a plan. We already know his plan has been soaked in prayer, but it's also based on solid preparation, strategic. He, he fasted and prayed, we read last week, 
for four months before he ever told the king about the burden that God had given him. So I just want to acknowledge what you might be feeling in the room in this moment. Maybe you did actually listen to the sermon last week and maybe you have been praying through like, God, give me a burden. What's the burden you're giving me? What's the good work you have for me? And maybe, maybe you got nothing. You're like scraping the bottom of the barrel, grasping at straws. I don't have any clarity on this. You might be frustrated that you don't know yet what the purpose is that God made you for. And if that's you, can I challenge you and step on your toes for a minute? When's the last time you fasted and prayed for four months about something? Man, that's, that's what Nehemiah did when he felt this burden. And I don't know about you, but like waiting, patience, all that, it's kind of hard for me. You know, like if my phone buffers for more than seven seconds, I'm in danger of losing my Christianity. Anybody else in the room? It's just, man. And yet prayer, when we come to God, it's not like this vending machine that you stick in a prayer and then you get to pick what you want and it pops right out. It's not how it works. Nehemiah prays and he fasts for four months and then he tells the king and then he has a thousand mile ride on a camel across the desert to think about his plan, right? Jesus tells his disciples to keep on praying and never give up. If this is you, if you don't know what it is yet, keep on praying and never give up. And as you pray, God will give you a burden that'll lead to a passion, that'll lead to a mission. And when he does, you're gonna need a plan. Every good work needs a plan. Now, I think you know this. If you talk to somebody who has a great marriage, or if you talk to somebody whose kids are flourishing, if you talk to somebody who's an expert in their field, who's really successful in their career, and you ask them, how did you get there? You know what I bet they won't say? I bet they won't say, I have no idea really. I just kind of woke up and it happened. It's just kind of all by accident. Like maybe some people, but, but the vast majority of the time, I bet they were intentional. I bet they had a plan for how they got there. And, and, and you know this. There's one preacher who says, a goal without a plan is just a wish. A goal without a plan is just a wish. If you want to lose weight, but you don't like put a plan in place to cut out dessert and start working out a few times a week, it ain't going to happen. And if you wanna get out of debt, but you're not willing to be disciplined and stick to a strategic, intentional budget, it's not gonna happen. Let's, let's play out a hypothetical scenario here together. I'm not talking about anybody in particular, but let's say you know a young man who is single and he'd really like to get married and have a family someday. My guess is if he came to you with that dilemma, you could have some good pieces of advice for how to put the right practices in place in his life to make him marriageable. You can't, you, you, obviously, we can't promise he's gonna get a wife or anything like that, but, but you could show him how to get there and make it more likely to happen. I can think of five specific steps that he should take. I bet you would tell him these same things. Step number one, get a haircut, right? <laughs> Pretty obvious, okay? Step number two, sell your Xbox. Did I step on some toes? Okay, sorry. Uh, step number three, get a good consistent job. You gotta be able to provide for this lady, you know? Step number four is always hygiene. Hygiene, hygiene. Like, brush your teeth, bro. Take a shower. Change your shirt at least once a week, okay? We'll start there. Um, and then step number five, obviously, the last step is go to Target, Right? Go to Target. That's where all the girls go to find the things they don't really need. Yeah? <laughs> Seeing some elbows flying. Settle it in the parking lot, okay? Uh, <laughs> no, but you could do this, right? You could show him the steps he needs to take to put a plan in place to reach his goal. It's the same thing with our walk with Jesus. My guess is most of you, you have a plan for your finances, and you have a plan for your physical fitness. And you have a plan for your career. Can I challenge you? Do you have a plan for your maturity? 
Do you have a plan to become the person God wants you to be? Do you have a strategy for how you're gonna become the kind of spouse, the kind of parent that God wants you to be, for how you're gonna become the kind of giver, the kind of server using your gifts that God wants you to be? Do you have a strategy for how you're gonna be, grow to become the kind of Jesus follower that he meant you to be? Because here's the difficult truth of the matter. It's just reality. Nobody drifts into spiritual maturity. Nobody drifts into spiritual maturity. We don't just like wake up one day and ta-da, I'm like Jesus. Like, it doesn't happen. Paul says you gotta work out your salvation every day. You gotta just take another step closer to him. Man, if you wanna do the good work God has for you, you don't just need a passion. You need a plan. If you want a deep marriage, you gotta start praying together. If you want God's blessing on your finances, you gotta lean into sacrificial generosity. If you wanna grow in your love for God, you have to forgive the people who hurt you. If you wanna become the kind of person who recognizes the sound of God's voice, you gotta spend time in God's word and in prayer and in deep conversations with other believers. So I guess just, here's, here's my question for you today. What's your plan? Like, what, what's your plan? What is it that you're aiming for? And how are you gonna get there? I learned something really interesting this week. Um, Jesus asks a lot of questions in the Gospels. In fact, we see Jesus ask over 300 questions. Do you know what the most common question is that Jesus asked? The most common question Jesus asked isn't, do you believe in me? Or do you wanna to go to heaven when you die? It's not even, why in the world aren't you people listening to me and just doing what I tell you to do? <laughs> the most common question Jesus asks is, what do you want me to do for you? He walks up to people and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And I'm convinced that the God of heaven stands ready to pour out his favor and his presence upon us, to fill you with his passion, to complete his mission by his power for his glory, if we will just receive it and work his plan. So if Jesus walked in here today and he looked you in the eyes and he asked you that question, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? What's your plan? Your good work needs a passion. Your good work needs a plan. But here's the third thing. Your good work also needs people. Your good work needs people. Now, here's my confession to you. We've talked about it a little bit before. I'm kind of a lone ranger by nature. I'm wired as an introvert. And so on any given day, there's this little voice inside of me that would just rather do it by myself. I, I don't naturally work well by committee or play well on a team. Like if I have something to do, the little voice inside me says it would just be faster and easier and you'd do it better if you just did it by yourself. I just don't do well on committee by natural Luke, right? Because because committees are kind of slow, aren't they? Can I get an amen? You guys have done this. You work on teams before. Like I've heard it said before that a committee is a group of the unfit appointed by the unwilling to do the unnecessary. <laughs> and that's the truest thing I've heard all day, y'all. Um, in fact, we see a lot of people that are like really concerned right now that computers are taking over the world, AI and all that stuff. Well, if that's your concern, don't worry about it. We'll just organize all the computers into committees. That'll slow them down. We're gonna be fine, okay? <laughs> 
But as I have gone throughout my life trying to live as a lone ranger, I've learned that that old African proverb is true, that if you wanna go fast, go alone, but if you wanna go far, go together. And Nehemiah knew that too. He knew he needed people to build this wall. Take a look at this, Nehemiah chapter two, verses 17 and 18. He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Now notice, Nehemiah did not say, hey, I'm gonna build this wall. He didn't even say, you guys need to get to work and build that wall. He said, let, let us rebuild the wall. Let's do this together. And I think it's interesting that here in Nehemiah chapters two and three, he doesn't go on and on about how great his wall is. He doesn't talk about how beautiful it is, how thick it is. He doesn't talk about their building methods, how great of a leader he was, how they all went from zero to hero in 52 days, started from the bottom now. Like, he doesn't do any of that, right? Nehemiah devotes a whole chapter of this book to just naming the people who chipped in to help him along the way. He didn't have to do that. Nehemiah could have just done the victory speech we see at everything else. Oh yes, and when I got this burden and fulfilled this great mission God had to me, there were so many of the little people who helped me along the way and I'd just like to thank them. Like, he doesn't say that. Instead, look at chapter three. Flip over in your Bibles to chapter three. Just let your eyes skim down it real quick. Nehemiah mentions 75 different people by name who helped build the wall. People young and old, people from near and from far away, rulers and mayors and goldsmiths and perfume makers and priests and fathers and sons and daughters and families working together. And if you go read Nehemiah chapter three, you'll notice Nehemiah is actually really smart. He does something really savvy. He doesn't get all the people together at once to kind of work on one section of the wall at a time. He assigns each person to rebuild the wall that's in front of their own house. There's a principle there. Maybe your good work starts at home. Maybe your good work starts with just being faithful where you are, to do what you can where you are right now, to protect your own house first. Can you think about, man, how different would our communities be, would our church be, would our neighborhoods be if we all committed to doing that? To building our own home first and then out of that to continue serving? In Nehemiah chapter three, he goes on and on. He kind of works his way around the wall. He names these people who helped him build. And there's this one little phrase that appears over and over again here in chapter three. It's just three little words, but it appears over 20 times. It's the phrase next to him, next to him. Just an example, look at these three verses. Notice how many times it appears. Nehemiah says, above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. The first thing we need to learn is that those parents clearly didn't spend as much time thinking about names as Rebecca and I did with Wesley, right? But man, next to him, 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 it begs the question, who is next to you? I guess that'd be the second question I'd like to ask you today. Who, who are your people? Like, who are those people that you're gonna link up with arm in arm and, and you're gonna do this mission together? Who is next to you? Who, who are your people? Because Christianity is a team sport. 
In the school of Jesus, community isn't an elective just for the super spiritual people. It's core curriculum. We need people. That's why we want every single person in our church family to be in a group. If you're not in a group, you need to be in a group. You gotta be life on life with other believers. We got groups on Sunday mornings. We got groups that meet all throughout during the week. Whatever phase of life you're in, whatever your availability is, we have a group for you. You can always go out to the hub, go to the information center and find out more there. You can always go to our website, click on the groups tab. You got to be in a group. Paul, uh, uh, the New Testament talks about this too. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Guess church attendance was a problem back then too. (laughs) But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You need people who are gonna spur you on toward love and good deeds. You need people who are going to speak life into you and know your story and encourage you in whatever it is, the good work that God has for you. You've gotta have a crew that, yeah, that, yeah you, you're on a group text together and you've got them on speed dial and you can laugh and you can make fun of each other but at the end of the day, you are grounded in the same core commitments and you are on this mission together side by side no matter what. You need those people who can look you in the eye and say, hey, listen, no matter what, I've got your back ride or die. Let's go storm the gates of hell with a squirt gun, right? Like you need those friends. I'm telling you, you can't do the mission alone. Your good work needs people. And here's the cool thing about all that. When all these people in Nehemiah chapter three were working, they had no idea that their names were going to end up in Holy Scripture being read aloud 2,000 years later in Plainfield, Indiana. They were just stacking rocks in the heat of the day, smashing their thumbs and sweating through their shirts. And yet God did something through their good work. He did something bigger than they ever could have imagined. In verse one, Nehemiah says, Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. When Eliashib dragged himself out of bed every morning and went to go stack rocks and slather on some more mortar every single day, he had no idea that hundreds of years later, a man named Jesus would come to that same sheep gate and heal a lame man and the kingdom of God would come. Verse 15, Nehemiah says, the fountain gate was repaired by Shalun, son of Kolhoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam. Shalun, he's just trying to be faithful, just going out and doing the good work that was in front of him. He had no idea that hundreds of years later, God was gonna send his son, Jesus, who would come to that same pool of Siloam that Shalun had helped build, and he was gonna give a blind man back his sight. God used these ordinary people with their ordinary lives, filled with his passion, working his plan, working together to build something that would help usher in the son of God to save the world. And I'm telling you, church, God is building something here. And it's deeply spiritual and it's eternal. And so I don't know if you and I will ever get to see it in fullness, but I hope we do. Because I believe that we together as the people of God, filled with the passion of God, working the plan of God, in the same way that God used Nehemiah's good work to bring Jesus, he will use ours too. I hope you receive the communion elements when you walk in. Take those out now. You know, we said last week that the point of this book isn't to be like Nehemiah. That's not what we're doing. The, the, the Bible's more than just giving us examples. The Bible's meant to give us a savior. 
And so every good thing we see in Nehemiah is ultimately reflected in the goodness of Jesus. And I'm struck by how Nehemiah didn't have to go to Jerusalem. I mean, he was a thousand miles away living a comfortable life. He didn't have to step into their pain and yet he did. And when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, he didn't come just as like a boss to say, hey, listen, you guys gotta get your act together and here's how you're gonna do it. He didn't say, hey, you guys are in trouble. He said, look at the trouble we are in. He became one of them. Reminds you of Jesus, doesn't it? That he didn't have to come. I mean, he could have just left us on our own to, to suffer for our rebellion against him. We deserved it. And yet he came. And he didn't just come to tell us what to do. He came to become one of us. God took on human flesh. The prophet Isaiah says he's taken up our suffering. He's, he's borne our weakness. He's familiar with our pain. Hebrews says that he's a sympathetic high priest because he knows everything you're going through. He came and became one of us. And he had a mission. I'm struck in Nehemiah chapter two, this scene we saw where Nehemiah goes on this little trip around the city of Jerusalem late at night all by himself to survey the damage there in the Kidron Valley is the valley he went through and I'm reminded of Jesus alone at night outside Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley knowing that in a few hours he was gonna be nailed to a cross and the people who were supposed to help him in his mission to save the world, those disciples, when Jesus was arrested there in that valley late at night, they fled, he was all alone and yet he didn't give up on the mission because he had a burden. He had a passion to see the plan of God to come to fruition so that you and I could get to be a part of his family and now to get the share in the good work that he's doing. So we're gonna receive this little piece of bread. I'll give you a moment to do it on your own and, and just tell Jesus thank you for completing his good work. And then I'll pray and we'll receive the juice together to celebrate the blood of Christ. Jesus, thank you so much for what you have done for us. Thank you for coming to become one of us. It's so good to know that you understand. And Jesus, we thank you that, man, we, we couldn't get in to your family on our own. Our, our best works are just filthy rags, Isaiah says. And yet, when you said on the cross that it is finished, we believe that it really is, that the work has been done. So we praise you for that. And Father, it, it strikes me that if we were to ask you these two questions, what's your plan? You would say that your plan is to make everything new in heaven and on earth through the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the return of your son, King Jesus. And that Father, if we asked you, who are your people? Because of him, you would say us. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is the blood of Christ. Let's stand and worship our risen king together. Yeah.